gun, get your gun, get your gun. Take it Actually, how, how are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm doing pretty well, Terry. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, it's cold in Philadelphia. Oh. And I'm not super happy about it. And you told me earlier that you're in Orlando. So. I am. It's it's not cold here. It's actually very nice and temperate. By temperate, what does that mean? Like, what's the temperature? You know, it's in the 70s. I knew you were going to say the 70s. <laughs> I was like, I was like, 60s would be like do decent, but of course, it's like actually warm. You're probably not no, even wearing a jacket. It's kind of gorgeous. <laughs> it's not even the clouds aren't even. It's like sunny, right? Yeah, right. The, the, uh, right. The, the sun is shining. The people are smiling. <laughs> it's great. cloudy and chilly in Philadelphia. People are, I mean, people are always frowning, but it's cloudy and chilly on top of that. I'd take, I'd take sunny and frowning any day. Boy, yeah, so, I feel for you. Yeah, well, welcome to Over There. This is the podcast about Trump and military history. Uh, sorry, yeah. this is, whoa, that was bad. That's actually about military history and activism in the age of Trump, but it's so cold that I'm getting frustrated and I can't uh, I can't keep my thoughts straight. My name's Terry Brennan. I'm an artistic director here in uh, here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I'm Matt Martin. I'm a retired Air Force officer from the Dallas Fort Worth area. So, uh, Matt, one of the things that um, I wanted to talk to you about today is um, there's since since last year we're about we're coming up on uh, almost a full year of. Donald Trump, we're definitely coming up on a full year of him being in the news because of the fact that he was elected, but we're coming up on a year of him in office, and I think one of the things that has become a regular sort of thing we say to our friends is, did that just happen? Yeah, yeah. And I wish it wasn't, like, I I mean, it's like one of those things where you can make jokes about, but I kind of wish that I didn't have to say, did that just happen? And I'm almost getting to the point now where I don't even ask that question. Like, I legit, I'm just like, it probably happened. Um, But I wanted to start a little segment here, and it's called, Did That Just Happen? (laughs) Okay. And it's basically, it's basically where you and I talk a little bit about something that is kind of extraordinary that just casually happened. Like, it just casually happened at the White House. Um, For example... Uh, uh-huh. Today is uh, today's Thursday. Uh, do you know the date? Is today the thirtieth of November? It is we're recording this. Like so, I don't know. This might come out on Friday, but um, so on the thirtieth. So today, uh, just just yesterday, actually, uh, the president retweeted a couple of like far right Looney Tunes videos. Like Looney Tunes, not the actual cartoons, but like these like crazy far right videos yeah. of allegedly. Uh, Muslims uh, beating down a statue of the Virgin Mary, throwing something yeah. off a building. Basically, he found a far-right hate group in the UK called, I think it was Britain First, and and basically legitimized this group by retweeting their most likely phony videos. Yeah, And then his press secretary, uh, because, because she actually has... Um, like a, a working central nervous system was like, oh, well, the videos may or may not be real, but that's not really important. What's important is that the threat is real, which, you know, it's a... it's a The threat? The threat of what? Exactly. The threat of the fake video. Like, the, the videos are very dubious and most likely fake. And they're they're being pushed by basically... Uh, a British sort of cousin of something like the KKK. It's uh, it's a hate group. It's yeah. it's pretty small. Luckily, it's only about a thousand people. But nonetheless, they've now been given a signal boost by the president of the United States, and uh, and his press secretary because she knows that it's total junk, and because she also knows that she would probably be fired if she actually said something substantive like well. It might not have been the best move or like even something politically soft, like, well, it was kind of a mistake. But, you know, moving forward, because she knows that that puts her job in danger, she came out and just said, well, it doesn't matter if the videos are real. The threat is real. And as you said, the threat of what? Because if you're pushing an agenda on false information, then then what are we to believe? It, it's very right. frustrating. I was I was really frustrated this morning. I, I heard some whispers of it yesterday, but. I was, um, my basement flooded 
and I had to literally bag up everything in my basement. So I was kind of away from the news yesterday. Oh boy. And uh, yeah, but you know what? It was a project that needed to be done. My basement was a mess. Um, sometimes, uh-huh. sometimes natural disasters in uh, small cases like this kind of like motivate you to do what you're supposed to do. But I was sure. away from the news, and I heard about it today, and I became very, very frustrated uh, to know that we've gotten to a point now where the sitting president is pushing out conspiracy videos, which he did. On the campaign trail here and there, he's he's broken free a few times to do this since he's taken office. Mostly yeah. his staff has been pretty good at at least like minimizing the amount of junk that flows from his phone. But unfortunately, uh, I think as Bob Corker said, the, the adult daycare can't be there all the time. Yeah. And it's a very right. frustrating thing that we're dealing with right now. Right. It's hard to know even even what to say about that. Right. Uh, I mean, the, you know, the, the president of the United States, even if it were the case that we had legitimate security problems about Muslim immigrants. Right. Which we don't. But even if we, we did, <laughs> right. even if we did, but we don't. Important to note. Um I mean, there would be a way to carry out that conversation that would actually, you know, advance an agenda and identify policy objectives uh, or even just not be crazy. Right. There would be a way to have that discussion that just didn't make half of the world angry at you. Right. Correct. And, you know, and even even Theresa May, who's a very conservative politician, uh, the prime minister of Britain right now, told uh, tweeted that, like, she was really disappointed that he put these out. Like even one of his closest allies in the world was like, this is not the way to carry this out. Right. But, but you, you notice that they did Theresa May in particular did take a very um, measured tone because the thing is the United States is still super important to the world, right? The United States is still the glue that holds the world together. You know, we tend to focus on conflict zones and things that that occupy the headlines. You know, right now the global economy functions because there is more or less uh, law and order on the high seas. Commercial airliners can fly around the world without getting shot down, right? Or, you know, without um, being denied entry to the airspace of the countries that they're flying over. And if you're flying around Europe, you're flying around all the countries, right? You're just flying over them. Uh, and that is due in large part because of the efforts of the United States. The Navy is on the seas. Um, the, uh, the, the U.S. Uh, military as part of NATO sort of controls the airspace of, of Europe uh, and of the North Atlantic. Uh, and then we have hundreds of thousands of troops deployed overseas all over the world in, in about 180 different countries. Uh, and helping those militaries become more uh, professional, uh, better able to uh, combat terrorism or just to control their own borders. And because of that, global commerce functions, people can move about the world. There aren't any, you know, uh, Syria is a, is a problem, but it is, it is not a world war. You know, Russia is a problem. It's not a world war. And all of that is is utterly dependent upon the United States continuing to perform its functions in the world. Right. So the world leaders know that they they can't like, you know, they I'm sure they would love. I'm sure they would love to just, uh, you know, just condemn the behavior of the president of the United States. Uh, but they they can only go so far. Right. Because they they don't want to rock the boat too much. Yeah. Which is which is frustrating because of the fact that it seems the president isn't super concerned about rocking the boat. He obviously doesn't himself. care, right? Correct. He obviously doesn't care one iota. And and I don't think yeah, I, I think in a lot of ways doesn't have uh, what what you just described. I don't think he actually has a very clear sense of that. I don't think <laughs> no. he understands like how important some of the work we do is, and I think that he doesn't understand that because of that, it also has to be like dealt with delicately and not. Yeah. And not cavalier, uh, cavalierly. Is that a word? Cavalierly in a more in a cavalierly fashion. Yeah, I try to focus on the positive. Uh, you know, World War Three hasn't broken out yet, <laughs> so we have that going for us. Exactly. Exactly. So, 
Anyway, that is uh, so. That is. Did that just happen? Uh, yeah. Is there anything is there anything, Matt, that happened this week that caused you to look up and be like, "Did that just happen?" Y- yeah. So, so uh, you know, the the world is pretty distracted with the uh, everything that's going on with North Korea. Additional missile launches and oh, this is terrible, right? Uh, Donald Trump was uh, a little bit more muted than usual about that. Uh, because I think it may even be sink, you know, in the past he. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take that did that this ha- happen a slightly different direction, uh, because you know uh, so far up to this point, whenever uh, North Koreans have engaged in any provocative uh, activity, nuclear tests or uh, uh, missile launches or or whatever, uh, Donald Trump has has been responding with this truly. Uh, outsized rhetoric, right? Fire and fury. Um, we're going to, you know, visit force upon them, the likes of which the world has never seen. You know, this apocalyptic rhetoric about how we're just going to, you know, the implication being that we would have absolutely no problem going in there and killing 24 million North Koreans and um, accepting the casualties of however many millions of South Koreans, as well as the 30,000 troops, uh, the U.S. troops that we have there in the country, uh, that we would be absolutely ready to do that, you know, just uh, just for the for the threats, right? Not even if there was an actual attack. Uh, but bec- after this last missile launch, Donald Trump's uh, response was, we'll, we're going to take care of it, <laughs> whatever that means, right? Well, what it means is we're not going to do anything. Uh, there's, there's nothing that can be done, right? There, we've already pretty much levied all the sanctions that can be levied against that country. Uh, and um, now we are moving into the era where we have to accept the fact that North Korea is a nuclear power with an intercontinental uh, missile capability. And you know what? That's fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, for, fine. That's, that's fine. It's fine, right? It's not a big deal uh, for... For 70 years, right, since uh, since the early 50s, we have lived with a nuclear Russia. And at the height of the Cold War, the Russians didn't just have a handful of nukes pointed at us. They had 30,000 nuclear weapons pointed at us. On hair-trigger alert, they could have utterly obliterated the United States and most of the world uh, at a moment's notice, right? But the reason they didn't is because we could do the exact same to them. We had 30,000 nuclear weapons pointed at them, and this is a function called deterrence, right? Both sides were deterred from launching a nuclear attack uh, because they knew that the uh, results would be utter annihilation, and so they just weren't willing to do it. Uh, The same thing is going to... The same mechanism will now work for North Korea. Uh, They have nuclear weapons. We have a lot more nuclear weapons. Uh, Kim Jong-un, the one thing he wants most in the world is to remain in charge, right? Remain in power. And uh, launching a nuclear war would immediately end that. And so he's, he's not going to do it. And that's fine. Now, maybe over time, through the use of measured diplomacy, uh, we can uh, eventually uh, implement an, an arms control regime with the North Koreans, just like we ultimately did with the with the Russians, uh, where we slowly uh, disarm and have on-site inspections and give them incentives to uh, to reduce their nuclear arsenal, etc., and introduce stability into this relationship. Over time, there's a possibility that we, that we could do that. Of course, that requires a very uh, significant and robust diplomatic effort, and you know the Trump administration shows no signs of being interested in that so it may that may have to wait for now but for for the time being that's fine deterrence works north korea's nuclear power that just happened <laughs> oh man that was that was a heavy just happened but yes you're right I mean, <laughs> it it did. and that's something that's been on my mind for a while is the fact that <clears throat> we keep making we kept making all of these like you were saying, like apocalyptic talk and like a lot of like uh, goading, a lot of sort of like schoolyard talk from our president. And I remember thinking, well, I'm sure that someone somewhere in in the military industrial complex and inside of the multiple intelligence agencies we have are trying 
to to minimize the threat and try to find ways to like you were saying deter and maybe even find ways to like keep North Korea in a box and I thought this talk is really not incredibly helpful like if anything yeah. we should you know there's there, short of invading or or launching against North Korea which I really don't think is a good idea and it sounds like no one really thinks that there's really nothing we can do at the current moment and so, like you were saying, uh, that's fine. <laughs> like that's that you, you just have to sort of like accept that and find ways to deal with it. And at least you know it sounds like the the launch they made the other day, in theory, means that uh, a missile could reach Washington D.C. And yeah, I, I in wonder theory. if that I wonder yeah in theory there's a lot of like variables that go into that, but I wonder if that isn't part of what um, sort of. Uh, prompted the more muted response from President Trump. You know, before that, it was sort of like, you you know, nananana boo-boo, you can't get me. I'm going to yeah. do so many things to you. And the moment that there's a, a real actual threat, uh, then it said, well, we're, 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 we're working on it. I don't want to mess things up by, like, sounding like a jerk on yeah. Twitter. Heaven forbid. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm sure... I'm sh- here's what I what what I'm pretty confident has I have no firsthand knowledge of this but but here's my guess as to what has been happening over the past year uh, inside the White House uh, with Trump there confronted by McMaster and Kelly and General Mattis um, as these things happen and the North Koreans you know they've done a couple nuclear tests they've done a whole bunch of of missile tests and they've said many many provocative things and every time that happens. I bet that that Donald Trump says, well, why can't we just bomb these guys, right? Why can't we just shut them up and bomb them? And then uh, those those generals, uh, very, I'm sure, you know, very patiently, right? They have to sort of inhale and and uh, remember who they're talking to and very patiently and methodically explain, <laughs> well, Mr. President, if we did that... The North Koreans have 8,000 pieces of artillery on the border, 20 miles from Seoul, and they would immediately start um, using that artillery, and the result would be millions upon millions of South Korean casualties, as well as thousands of casualties uh, for the U.S. military. We have 30,000 troops there. Uh, we would do our best to uh, to start a bombing campaign against those artillery pieces, but that would be a camp to take, to take out all 8,000 of them would take many, many days. And in the process, we would have airplanes likely shot down. Uh, there would be other mishaps that happen when you try to conduct large military operations. Many Americans would be killed. And in the end, we wouldn't even be able to guarantee that we could get all of those nuclear weapons. So there, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid, Mr. President, that, that that's just really a, a very, very bad idea. And we highly recommend that you don't do that, right? And they have, Donald Trump has probably now heard that dozens of times, that speech, right? <laughs> And maybe, you know, and he, he actually, you know, Donald Trump doesn't respect a lot of people, but he really seems to respect these generals. And uh, and so that that seems to be sinking in slowly, right? Slowly, but surely. Yeah. Well, that actually brings me to something that I wanted to talk about a little bit today, um, which uh, which you and I discussed in the planning for the show, which is sort of the, and I think Donald Trump and his, his love for generals kind of is the, the pinnacle yeah. of this sort of phenomenon, which is that in, I don't, I don't claim to know when this started, if this has been like a thing for a long time, or if this is something very recent, like in the last like 15 years, but in, at least in cable news and uh, definitely like in kind of the media at large, we are dealing with what uh, seems to seem like a little bit of like military worship, which is, uh, yeah. I think that, which in some ways I feel like might even be like a sort of like a pendulum swing from the post Vietnam era when you had like vets coming home and pe- people hated them. They were they were very angry. The public was really uh, didn't trust or or like yeah. the military very much. Yeah. And in the the nineties when we when we geared up to go into uh, Iraq the first time there was a big there's a big push for support the troops which I think was in in my now I have a lot of friends who disagree with me on this but in my opinion was like 
uh, having a, a father who was uh, in the Army Reserves and who's what his old unit was called up. Like he had transferred out of um, he was a, in a prisoner of war unit. He was transferred out of that unit probably. Uh, a year or two before they were called up to go to Iraq. So as as someone who, you know, I I knew intimately people who might uh, be going over to Iraq, and I'm sure I knew one or two of my dad's friends who went over. Uh, When someone says, hey, we should support the troops, there's a part of me that's like, of course we should. Like, these people are doing a job, and you may not agree with the political decisions, but these are just people who are going places to do a thing. And, of course, that's why we call our reps, and that's why... If you have um, issues with the way the military is being used, then we want to we want to go through that process. And sometimes the process is uh, not as fast as we'd like, and there's many different ways to attack it. But I think what uh, one of the things that came out of that was support the troops. But from there, there seemed to grow, and I've I've witnessed this a lot. I've I've been in a number of online debates. I've been in more than my fair share of in-person debates that are usually terribly uncomfortable where I get someone who is on the other side of the issue. Uh, when, when we went into Iraq in 2000 and was it four? Was it the three? We went in? Three. I was right. I should have stuck with it. March it of 2003. March of 2003. When we went in 2003, I was working at a restaurant <laughs> in Philadelphia and there was a gentleman who came in on a regular basis Big pro going into Iraq guy. Big pro Iraq war guy. And when myself and a co-worker were talking to him, he, an older gentleman, launched into this thing where he said, I've served and I served to protect your freedom to disagree with this administration. And then the implication was, so shut up. And right. And, and, we, and we argued a lot. And he kept coming back to, have you served? Have you served? And yeah. I said, well, my dad served. And, uh, and then there's even politics of that because at first he's taken back and he's like, oh well, oh, oh well, well, what do they serve? Oh, you know, army reserves. And then there's oh reserves, oh reserves. So he didn't really go. Yeah. So and I knew a guy at a gym I worked at who was a marine, and uh, he was a marine who went into Vietnam, and you know, in a rare moment, uh, Nick the boxer is uh, what I affectionately called him because he loved boxing and talked mm-hmm. about it like literally every day. Uh, he'd come in and be like, oh, I was doing this and that, but Nick was talking to me and he said. That in the in the guys he hangs with, a lot of them believe that if you if you haven't seen combat, then you're not really a marine. Uh, and Nick has seen combat, and Nick says that he doesn't agree with that. But my point is, is there seems to be this larger sort of there's like a deference in a lot of ways given to yeah. uh, people in the military where the, where they're allowed to talk about this, and when they call people on to dissent on a lot of these cable shows, they often call someone who who's like, I dissent, but I was in the military. And I'm sure that that's to avoid the argument that I got into with this guy in the restaurant where they say, well, you don't know, you don't know. Like, you know, but it's kind of turned into this thing where it is treated in certain circles where if you don't have family in the military or if you haven't served yourself, which is a bigger one, that you don't have a place to talk about the military or military policy. Which yeah. I think kind of goes a little bit antithetical to the idea that we have a military that is run by civilians for the purpose of avoiding what we would consider a police or a military state. Um, uh-huh. I want to pitch this to you and just say, like, well, first of all, do you have you noticed this phenomenon I'm talking about, or is this something that you have? Not, oh yeah. Like, okay, so you've you've seen it, you've noticed it yourself. Yeah, sometimes it's it's pretty jarring. Um, I joined the military straight out of college in 1994, uh, and in that time, uh, you know, that was sort of right on the heels of uh, of Desert Storm, and De- Desert Storm was was kind of this. Um, uh, this very pivotal moment uh, in in what we I think we brought up this term last last uh, last episode uh, civil military relations right oh right <laughs> uh, and this this intersection it's an intersection that has political economic uh, cultural dimensions to it um, but a very pivotal moment in, in sort of the concept of uh, civil military relations in the United States because Desert Storm was the uh, was the first large-scale military operation uh, since Vietnam. And uh, I, I know I've brought up the, the Ken Burns documentary a few times on the podcast. I'm going to bring it up again because it's just so amazing. Uh, but uh, it, it, and one of, the, one of the reasons why um, it's amazing is Netflix, because... right? 
It's uh, well, it's PBS. Um, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, so uh, theoretically, anybody with an internet connection can go absolutely and, and look at it. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. Go to the PBS website and you can you can watch the episodes. It's it's really a, a stunning achievement. Uh, but uh, the, Ken Burr spends a lot of time talking to Vietnam veterans about their experiences uh, once they've come home from the war, uh, and uh, it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. Uh, you know, we we treated that we treated our 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 veterans terribly, uh, both during and and immediately after the Vietnam War. Uh, the American public just did not like that war. It was a terrible war, and a lot of very bad things happened. Uh, and for some reason, a large number of Americans decided to take it out on on the veterans, right? Uh, and that had a number of consequences, um, not least of which it was the mental health of these veterans because they immediately knew that when they came home from the war, they just couldn't talk about their experiences, right? And that meant that uh, that the trauma that they experienced, uh, both um, uh, PTSD, you know, where you... And the sort of the main cause of PTSD, at least in combat situations, is this eminent feeling that you're about to die, but you're utterly helpless to prevent it. Right. Uh, that is very traumatizing. Uh, we've seen that in, uh, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan as well. Uh, but then there's of this other concept, um, which is uh, we're, we're starting to get more of an understanding of. And that's this concept of moral injury. Right. When you are asked to do terrible things, uh uh, and um, you do some terrible things that actually injures you, right? That injures you psychologically, and those experiences kind of haunt you for, you know, for the rest of your life. Uh, and so we had all these Vietnam veterans that couldn't talk about their experiences because it was so stigmatized, and they they kept that in, and that resulted in a lot of mental health issues uh, that many of them are still dealing with today. And I I, I know a lot of Vietnam veterans. I kind of hang out with old old veterans uh, quite a lot. Uh, and in the, you know, uh, one of the things that was the result of, of Ronald Reagan, this renewed sense of, um, of pride in America, uh, which resulted in both good and bad things. But one of the good things that it resulted in was, uh, uh, you know, a start a little bit of national remorse over the way that we treated our Vietnam veterans. Right. Uh, and so when desert storm happened, desert storm was, was, uh, was important for a number of reasons, but one of the things that it was really important for was that it appeared to be an overwhelming military victory, right? We just absolutely crushed the Iraqi army and the Iraqi army was no slouch at the time. It was the fifth largest army in the world. Um, they, they had a lot of very sophisticated capabilities. We were expecting a really tough fight, uh, and it, it, they ended up being a, a house of cards that we we uh, we were able to to pick apart in 31 days. And uh, if I may add too to that, which I think is really important, is we had no. There's a lot of politics around like uh, Desert Storm that I'm not going to get into. But the the biggest one though is that we had a tangible goal, and the goal was to get them to withdraw from Kuwait. That's right. We had we we had a very specific, measurable operational objective. And once that's <laughs> achieved, we could be like, "Operation has been achieved. Now we're done." As right, opposed right. to as opposed to some of the wars we have now, where we're like, "Well, uh, you know, I feel like we're getting there." And you're like, "What's the right. goal?" And you're like, "Well, I mean, you know, we've got a couple." Got we've got a we've got some some objectives and yeah. um, we're making progress and uh, we're getting there but there's no end in sight the the of course there were strategic implications as desert storm we we ended up never leaving Iraq and you know I spent uh, years in in the uh, in the late 90s and early aughts flying no fly zone uh, patrol missions over Iraq uh, you know we had we we never left uh, because you know when you when you tear apart a country <laughs> there's consequences so it's it wasn't you know it wasn't necessarily the resounding strategic victory that we thought it was but certainly from an operational and tactical military perspective it was you know it was it was obvious right and mm. that gave us that gave us the opportunity to welcome home our veterans in this you know and there were ticker tape parades and, and and feel good again about about the military right as that was going on there was there's this other phenomenon 
that is the result of the Vietnam War, and that was the end of the draft, right? So everybody, uh, every American male over 18 knows that they still have to register with the Selective Service so that, in theory, we could at some point uh, resume the draft, uh, but we've never done it. And now... Uh, less than 1% of Americans are serving in the military at any one time. There's about 2 million people in uniform, uh, active duty guard and reserve, you know, out of 330 million Americans, right? So, so most people, you know, most people are not in the military. Most people don't know anybody in the military, except for some of these areas where there's sort of a, you know, especially in the South, there is still a bit of a socioeconomic gap and folks from more rural and Southern areas um, have a more common military experience than people who live in big cities. Cities. Um, that's that's another dynamic of this civil military relations uh, issue. But because you know the, the the sort of the dual phenomenon of national remorse over Vietnam, the all volunteer military, and a and an increasingly shrinking slice of Americans who are actually serving, we somehow got into this this thing where we put the military on a pedestal. And you know, I'm all for uh, treating. Those individuals who volunteer to serve and go overseas and make sacrifice, even if they're not serving in com- combat, uh, just going away from home for months or years at a time uh, is a great sacrifice, right? And a very small number of Americans have decided to do that. We should absolutely respect that. But it has led to a situation where we sort of implicitly trust the military. And if a general says it's true, we sort of implicitly believe that general and assume that um, whatever they're saying about you know military operations is correct and we should just do what do what they say and not question their judgment um, that's bad for all kinds of reasons uh, not the least of which is that as you mentioned this is you know the military is supposed to be under civilian control uh, but it leads to bad decision making and it lead you know uh, if we were more willing to uh, question military leadership, we may not have invaded Iraq or we may not have um, engaged in some of these operations that have had some significant negative consequences. Do you think that the lower number of people serving is also, do you think that contributes to us being a little more, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, eager to send troops other places specifically because you, I, I don't I don't know any of these people we're sending over. I mean, I do, but my point is, is theoretically, are we more likely to send troops off if we don't have troops in our immediate like family or social circles? Yeah, I, I, well, what, what it leads to, I don't think anybody you know who doesn't have any military connection is maybe enthusiastic about sending Americans overseas. But it also means that they're not aware of uh, the large numbers of Americans that we sent overseas. You know, uh, uh, two months ago when we had we had the terrible events in Niger, uh, you know, who knew that we had 800 Americans in in a tiny country in West Africa conducting counterterrorism operations, right? Most Americans had no idea that we we were there and we were doing what we were doing. And so it came as a shock when all of a sudden four Americans get, get killed there, right? Uh, by, by sort of implicitly trusting um, the the military administration uh, and not having a personal connection to the military, it gives a lot of... Americans sort of the intellectual freedom to not not track these events and not you know not find out what's going on and therefore just be unaware of of what your government is doing you know in your name and and the potential sacrifices that other Americans are making you know in theory on your behalf so do we is there a way to is there a way to sort of fix that problem short of, I mean, I'm sure that, I mean, I know I would not be interested in reinstituting a draft, but is there, is there a <laughs> right. way to, to sort of solve that problem? The problem of just, I mean, so as a person who runs an organization, I run, I run an arts organization and it's small, yeah. it's real small. Um, I only have like, I'm, I'm technically the only staff member, but there are, there are people who, who volunteer and help out. But I mean, I've found that, the more people you have involved in a thing, the more difficult it is to do because you always have variations of dissent, right? If I'm sure. like, guys, I want to have a Christmas p- 
production. Someone's like, I don't want to do no Christmas production. Like, I'm out of town. Or someone else is like, uh, maybe it should be a holiday production, not a Christmas production. So they're like, okay, holiday production. But then someone else is like, the more voices you have, the more difficult. And it's not to say that it can't be done, but it does become more difficult. So people in charge, and I can relate to this, people in charge tend to, they want to make decisions with as little sort of friction or as little... Um, as, as few voices in the room as possible oftentimes. And it's it's not yeah. even so much because they have nefarious things in mind, although that definitely becomes a thing sometimes. But it's because it becomes easier to enact the things that you see as getting stuff done. You want to get something done? If there's 10 people working, at least on the decision-making process, it becomes more difficult than if there are three people working. So I can sure. see why it's attractive for military leaders if if there is less if there if there's less people involved if the public is a little less vocal in what we're doing because there are so few people in the actual population in the military percentage wise i can see why having some sort of like weekly announcement of what we're doing is probably not right. something they're going to love but is there a way that we can circumvent this problem which is essentially that there's a lot of people who just don't know like they might actually object to something and say wait wait I don't want my military doing that but since right. they don't have any connection they don't even know it's an issue until soldiers turn up dead in a West African country and they're like whoa whoa wait we're in Africa I didn't even right. know we we're in Africa yeah, I mean, is there a way to do that, or is that something that maybe falls more on the media, which is got its hands full right now? Um, as so, so this this goes this goes back to everything that we have been saying from the beginning of this of this podcast, right? We you have to get uh, representatives into government, local, state, and federal level that care about this stuff, right? And so you have to care about it. You have to do a little bit of research. It's not like it's not like these things are are secret, you know. It was a matter of public record that we had 800 Americans in Niger and uh, there's a, a a US uh, combat command called Africa Command or Africom. Uh, they have a website. <laughs> Their website no, yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, on that website, they issue press releases and uh, have articles about some of the different operations that they're carrying out. And um, the, the the information is out there. Um, if you watch cable news, you're not going to find out about it because it's not very splashy. It's not very sensational and it's not going to get covered until something terrible happens. Uh, so you're going to have to seek out alternative, uh, you know, others. You're going to have to seek out print media. <laughs> Uh, to, to find out about those things. And then uh, you've got to work to get representatives in Congress who care about those things and who are going because, you know, the, the, the military is overseen by Congress. Congress uh, sets the budget for the military. Congress uh, approves, you know, the United States, uh, the, the president of the United States cannot just, uh, even though it, it, it seems like he can, the United States, the President of the United States cannot just decide, hey, I'm going to go put a whole bunch of Americans in Africa, right? He has to tell Congress what he's planning on doing, and Congress has to approve um, the resourcing of those operations, right? And if things go badly, then Congress is going to ask questions about what are we doing there, what are our objectives, what strategy is this serving? And the administration has to have answers, Um if Congress doesn't demand too much of them, then the answers they provide are not going to be very good. Uh, so we have to have members of Congress in there who are going to uh, over perform the proper oversee, uh, oversight role per Article One of the Constitution and ask hard questions of the military leadership. Now, let me jump on that really quick, because that brings me to this uh, something that was on my list anyway, which is so in this sort of culture where we have a certain amount of like military worship how does someone who so because we've been talking about flipping districts and we've been talking about getting people installed in the government who really want to you know oversee things like this in a really responsible manner yeah but it's tough i it's tough i i don't i have not run for office but i've seen my fair share of political ads and i'll tell you what right now in this political environment and this might be shifting a little bit but there's, I don't know any politician who would run on a platform of more military oversight or 
cutting military spending or yeah. these things that I'm saying are kind of poisonous politically. And, and, and I don't know if they're poisonous legislatively, right? If yeah. you're doing this, I don't think they're maybe quite as bad, but you have to do, it seems there's a lot of flag waving. Um, and I, I, when I say that, I just mean in a, in a superficial way, cause I have nothing, I have, I have no problems with people who really <laughs> actually do love to wave the flag, but there's a lot of sort of right. like, um, sort of like signaling. We're like, look at me, look at how patriotic I am. Look how much I love the military. And it, and if anyone's like, hey, listen, I want to take a hard look at some of the things we're doing, boy, that is often met as like, why do you dislike the military? What, right. what is your problem? And that, I mean, I've seen it sink. I've seen it completely sink people who are running for for Congress. Maybe, maybe this, maybe the solution is starting this culture on a smaller level in like state offices or. Um, City offices, but but what what's your take on that? Because I gotta say, like I don't see, at least currently, any 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 direction yet that 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 is kind of viable. Because there's a lot of splashy um, TV ads that can really take what you say out of context, or even not out of context, and just paint you as an awful person because you really want to ask the hard questions of some of the things yeah. we're doing in the world. Yeah, so uh, I mean that 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 is a, that is a great question and a, and a great conundrum. Uh, I remember uh, in the run up to the in, to the Iraq invasion in early two thousand three, uh, you, you might remember there was just a there was just a ton of protests, right? Uh, I do remember. I do remember in, in the U.S. and and worldwide, right? It was um, you know so there were there there were a lot of people very loudly communicating to the bush administration that they did not think it was a it was a good idea and i remember during that time there was a lot of counter protesters uh, you know along the same lines saying hey wh- why you know why are you against the the military right you're 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 being un-american uh and i, I the response at the time was something like well I'm for the troops, but I'm against the war, right? Which oh man, is, I haven't heard that for forever. I forget. Yeah, that was definitely a thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is not a. I mean, I don't know that it's a bad response. Um, you know, it's kind of short and it gets to the point, um, but it doesn't really get at the. Uh, you know, because when you say you're for the troops, uh, it's hard to. It's hard to then argue that, well, maybe we need to cut the military budget or maybe we need to uh, think about the operations we're conducting because, um, you know, that's it's very easy to turn that into, well, you don't want the troops to have the equipment that they need to do their mission, et cetera. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's tough to follow that through. Um, so I've been working with... Um, with uh, Jan McDowell, who's running for running for Congress in the 24th district of Texas, uh, it's kind of a swing district. Uh, she's trying to flip that from a Republican to a Democrat district, and uh, she doesn't have any military experience. Uh, she, you know, she does. Um, she, she's never really uh, followed these issues, uh, and so we I've been working with her to try to get her smart on this stuff, and. What we've been focusing on is, uh, you know, there are there are 40 in her district in Texas, 24. There are 40,000 veterans. Right. Uh, which is it's a good chunk. It's about a quarter of the of the voters there. Uh, and uh, if you could, you know, if you could uh, make a case that is sympathetic to that group and win over some of those voters, that may be the thing that that tips that district. Right. Uh, and so we've been working on messages that uh, that could potentially resonate with veterans. And one of them is this idea that, well, when you engage in these military operations and you expand operations to new areas, you are creating new veterans. Right. And if you don't think seriously about um, your uh, operational and strategic objectives, then you're going to have those military operations are going to go badly. And you're not just going to create veterans, you're going to create veterans who uh, have physical and mental health issues, right? And are you then subsequently uh, resourcing the Veterans Administration, the VA, to prepare to handle these veterans that you've created because you sort of plunged into these military operations that weren't very well thought out, right? And this this is exactly what happened for the Iraq War. You know, we, we wonder how it can how how it can be that 
you know, now it takes months to years for Iraq and Afghanistan veterans to get the VA treatment that they need and that they deserve and that uh, we absolutely owe to them. And the way it happened was we sent 150,000 Americans to Iraq and another 200,000 to Afghanistan, and they had a terrible experience for 10 years. And as a result, millions of them end up being cycled through those countries. And now they're all veterans with mental and physical health issues. And when we invaded Iraq in 2003, we did not say, oh, you know what we need to do? We need to vastly increase the resources of the VA to get ready for these guys because they're coming, right? And so... Uh, that's the policy, that's a policy that we can focus on that say, hey, uh, we got to get ready to support our veterans. And do we really want to launch these operations that are going to make veterans that have a hard time in life? That's that's one thought. That is one thought. And that actually is something that I've thought about a lot because the many times the most eager politicians who are ready to send troops into many parts of the world are less eager to fund the VA. Like I've seen that that's anecdotal. I don't have a lot of hard evidence on that, but what I can say is that fiscal conservatives tend to say like, well, we gotta, we gotta trim our belt. And one of the places that, that our belts get trimmed a lot is VA. And I know a handful of, um, of, Military veterans, a couple of people my age who are in Iraq and Afghanistan. I know some older folks who have a really tough time getting their benefits. And yeah. it's because like, no one ever wants to cut tank production. No one's ever like, maybe less <laughs> tanks. Yeah, my dad was a tank commander in the, uh, uh, in the, the later part after he transferred out of a POW uh, camp, he uh, he was working as a, a tank commander, and we talked a lot about how what what really bothered my dad is he was like we spend so much money on on developing some of the worst ways to kill people. He's like some yeah. of the weapons I have on this tank do some really terrible things to if anyone yeah. who would get hit by them. Uh, and he yeah. said he said uh, and and it's funny because I talked to someone uh, recently who was studying biochem in school. They got a PhD in it, I think. And I asked her uh, what she wanted to do, and she's like, "I really want to get into bioweapons." And I was like, "What is wrong with you? Like, wait, wasn't that the whole reason we went into Iraq? Is we were like, none of that." And and then there's right. this person who was a huge uh, believer in in the war in Iraq, a huge believer. Huh. In a lot of the stuff we're doing overseas, um, and there was this disconnect because she was like, "Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that if we got into a longer discussion, perhaps I could have found some common ground with her." But I was like, "So you want to develop things that like fry people from the inside in disgusting and terrible ways?" Again, like no one's ever like, "Hey, maybe we don't um, develop a weapon that like burns <laughs> your skin off from the inside out." Perhaps we spend time on literally fixing the people who come back both psychologically and physically um, you know my father even said one of the things that he talked about was he was like you know people keep talking about how uh the wars we wage now where we have so many less uh casualties or no they said fatalities they talk about how we have so many less fatalities and he's like and it's true he's like but what they're leaving out is that a lot of these guys who would have died 15 or 20 years ago um we have the ability to save he goes which is great but it doesn't change the fact that they got both of their legs blown off and we're not talking about that and and it's one of those things where i think i agree with you on this uh in the sense that like no one ever says like, Hey, I got an idea. How about a really robust VA? Like that would be, that would be a thing. And I also think that to be honest, um, it's, it's kind of frustrating because we have, um, you know, there's always this talk from fiscal conservatives about, about, uh, bringing down the deficit. And, yeah. you know, one of the things that's, that at least right now is like completely politically off limits. The last time I heard anyone talk about reducing military spending, in order to trim on the budget, and right. correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the last person I heard talk about that uh, in all seriousness was Bill Clinton. I don't think Obama talked about it. Did Obama ever talk about that? Well, so there's there there was this thing passed in uh, in uh, 2012 known as the uh, the sequestration, uh, and that was an attempt to sort of not cut the military budget but constrain its growth. And so now we we now have these sort of arbitrary spending caps. Uh, and 
you know, the ironic thing is that it's it's actually made the military less efficient and uh, made it harder to spend money wisely. Uh, right. Because this it is played- where you go out back and shoot off all your ammo, so you get the same amount of ammo next year, right? <laughs> well, that that's part of the budgetary process, but the sequestration. Uh, you know, said, hey, you, you know, we're going to place this cap on all military spending, regardless of the of uh, whether it's, you know, stuff that we actually need or stuff that we don't need. Uh, it's just going to be a cross cross the board spending cap. Uh, and that means that um, uh, the, the military can't, you know, if it needs to. If it needs to retire old weapon systems and, and uh, uh, replace them with with newer systems that are more effective, more efficient, cheaper to maintain, etc., it can't really do that, right? Because it's capped at these spending levels, and so it has to keep it reinvesting money in old technology, old capabilities, uh, because it's cheaper in the short term, even though it's going to be more expensive in the long term. Combine that with the fact that. Congress hasn't passed uh, an on-time military budget in in 12 years, uh, and right now we're still on a continuing resolution. There's no military budget that's been approved for fiscal year 18, even though we're already almost halfway through the fiscal year, and they will ultimately pass a budget probably in the third quarter of the fiscal year, and now the military is going to have to scramble to spend all the money that it it was supposed to spend over the course of the year, and that leads to waste, and uh, it's just a a mess. Congress has completely fallen down on the job of, of just doing the basic budgetary functions that are part of their constitutional job description. The important thing is not so much the overall amount of, of uh, military spending, although that that's certainly significant, but are we doing it in a way that's smart and efficient and effective? And right now we're throwing tons of money at the military, but doing it in a very sloppy way. Yeah. Well, and I think that brings us back to the fact that what Congress is supposed to be doing is kind of inherently boring. <clears throat> and yeah. I feel like the people don't get uh, excited or people, you know, basically I, I feel like our reps are avoiding the really boring stuff and that's some of the most important stuff. And because of the fact that we have a 24 hour news cycle and we have uh, a president, I mean, it was, we had this problem before Trump, but it's been exacerbated since Trump. We have a news cycle that is dominated by like splashy, scary, uh, sensational stuff and a lot of the the really boring stuff that actually kind of needs our attention goes really not talked about and therefore not done or at least not called to account like in the cases where where we, we you know one of the things I wish I wish I was calling to say why didn't this come to a vote I wish I could call yeah. and say that I wish that was my my goal as an activist but most of the times I'm calling to say you're not you're not voting on this you're not saying yes to this are you you're not you're not gonna take away my health care are you you're not gonna raise my taxes <laughs> um, because it's a tax cut for the middle class yet it's actually a tax cut for the rich and in two years I'm gonna get squeezed like these right. are the things that are like pushing in the headlines right now. And we don't have any time because because of the fact that we're basically avoiding crisis after crisis. We don't have time to get into like actual management, actual governance, and it's it's very frustrating. But I think that why well, this just keeps bringing us back to that you got to get involved then on the sort of ground level, grassroots, like who your congressional person is like senators are important but you know senators cover the whole state and you should absolutely get involved with that but like your congressperson has a pretty small district small you know relatively speaking you know my congressperson has an office he has two offices within two miles of my house one of them's within a block of my house and the other one's like two miles north but my point is is like i can go and talk to his staff and we agree on a lot of things, so I don't have to go down there and yell and holler. But my point is, is that like it's really important to get involved on your local level, your yeah. who your congressional representative is, and right. really make sure that like these values are kind of being pushed. Because I think we got a long, I think we got a long haul in front of us, but we really need to kind of change the culture from one of sort of like splashy culture wars that tend to be ideological and we need to make them more and and there's a place for that but like we need to make it more about actual tangible things that can be done 
And that's yeah. boring, like straight up. Like that's reading, even just reading a Slate article about <laughs> the tax bill that's up right now can be kind of boring sometimes. Sure. But the thing is, is you know what else is boring is like bankruptcy. And it's terrible. <laughs> like it's boring right. and I'm losing all my stuff. So yeah. um, it's really important that like stuff like this, like nobody wants to think about troops coming home injured, maimed, or even killed. Right. It's the boring stuff that helps us avoid stuff like that. And it's the boring stuff that even like, I think that sometimes people on the really far extremes of things can sometimes get together on. Now that's, I'm totally pulling that out of my butt. I don't actually have any examples of that, but I do know that I've found that in the past, when you get into boring stuff, you'll find people who are like, no, no, that's a good idea because now you're not talking about Starbucks cups or, um, right. <clears throat> or something that is a proxy for something else. You're talking about an actual thing that needs to get done. Right. And we've we've talked about this before. Nobody's going to say, you know what, screw the troops. Right? 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 Nobody's going to say that. <laughs> that, I know that is a, people who might say that. But, um, that that but is a point and, of common ground. Yeah, that's exactly true. And, well, so that, that kind of, I want to pivot from that into... So I'm a, I was going to talk about things we can call our reps about this week, but I, I think what I'm instead going to talk about, because I think this is important, is resources you can use yeah. to find out more about stuff like this going on. The most important thing you can do. So last week we talked about if you have a cause, go out and get a group, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Pardon me. One of the things that... Uh, one of the groups that I follow on Facebook, and I programmed it so it comes up first. So anytime there's a group called Ceasefire Pennsylvania, and they're a gun control advocacy group, and uh-huh. anytime they put something out, it comes up first on my feed because I programmed it. I went there. I said I, I clicked like, and you know maybe you're not a gun control guy. Maybe you're like a responsible gun owner type who's like, I think that gun laws should be like X, Y, and Z. Well, that's fine. There's groups for that too, but you go and you program Um, You say, I like your group, and then you program that you want to see their stuff first. And that way you don't miss anything they put out. Most of the stuff that I've programmed first are actually political enemies, like like my my good man Pat Toomey in Washington, D.C. That dude tweets like three or four times a day, and I see it first all the time, and I'm pretty sure it's why I'm in a bad mood a lot. But I want to know what he's putting out. Um, most of it's fluff. Most of it's like, uh, hey, I went to Pennsylvania and baked a cake. Like, that's actually a thing. One time he was like, look, I'm a beekeeper. I'm like, dude, you need to do your job. But uh, my point is, is, that's what we talked about last week. Go get a group and and follow what they're doing and help out where you can. Another one that you can do is you can go to whoismyrepresentative.com and you just type in your zip code and it'll tell you your two senators and it'll tell you who your congressperson is. And your congressperson... Of those three, are, is probably the most important, and the reason is because they're up for election every two years, right? Yeah. So no matter, so if they do something you don't like, and you call them, and you're like, "Yo, what was that about?" They'll listen a little more than a senator will because of the fact that like their term is constantly kind of up for grabs. It depends. Some some people are in really safe districts, but they will listen a little more than someone who's got a six year term, especially if they just got elected to that six year yeah. term. But who is my representative.com? That'll give you uh, your people. And then what I what I recommend is you you get the phone number of either their DC office. I like calling their local office because it's usually easier to get through and you can talk to somebody uh, even in times of like uh, if, 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 if like the issue's hot and a lot of people are calling, it's easier to get through to a local office than the D.C. office. But if time is of the essence, you want to call D.C. But my point is I program that into my phone. So that way if I see something and I'm like, Dwight Evans, I'm so mad at you, Yeah, I can just type in Dwight Evans uh, and I don't have to go and look for his number and then change my mind because I'm tired or annoyed or uh, my basement flooded or whatever because everybody here has stuff that's, that is urgent and takes a lot of your time personally and so uh-huh. to do this other stuff is uh, is difficult but the way to make it a little bit easier is you you program that into your phone who is my representative.com it's a big help another one i would recommend is you just want to find like you said earlier print publications or at least uh-huh. online versions of print publications so yeah. one you know i have a subscription to both the new york times and the washington post they send me a roundup of articles every day, and even if I don't read all of them, well, I, let me rephrase that. 
I don't, I don't read all of them. There's a lot of articles to read, but I read the headlines and the ones that catch my eye. I go in and read a little bit deeper, but sure. I'm more informed than a lot of people that I chat with because I take like, it only takes like 10 or 15 minutes. I just look over the headlines and if something is really disturbing or really interesting or really whatever, I pop it open and read it or maybe I read it later on my phone. But it's really important that like you were saying, print publications tend to cover the more boring stuff. Yeah. Uh, New York times is good. Um, Washington post is good. Vox or slate are good. They're a little bit longer. Sure. These yeah. are all Vox and slate skew a little bit more liberal progressive but i mean yeah. like if, if you're listening to this podcast chances are you already sort of have <laughs> some of those ideas so anyway that, that's, that is my tactical checklist is get a subscription especially something like slate or vox you, they don't charge anything so you can just have them send stuff to your email box and go to whoismyrepresentative.com and program those numbers in even if you never use them program them in it can't hurt to have those in your phone Especially if someone's like, I really want to call Dwight Evans. He makes me so mad. You're like, oh, uh, interesting fact. Uh, I, I got that right here. Do you want it? And then you yeah. can give it to your friend who maybe they'll call. But it's important to have that on hand. Anyway, that's my tactical checklist for today. Uh, things you can do to help change the tide of, of some of these issues that we're talking about on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, you know, A friend of mine the other day uh, asked me, hey, you know, I, I want to volunteer for a campaign, uh, but... I live in a blue district, um, and so I already agree with everything that my representative is doing. I think he's he or she is doing great, uh, and so I, I, I want to, you know, I don't just don't feel like that's going to have a big impact if I go work on that campaign. Uh, and that's and my response is, well, I I guarantee you, <clears throat> there is a swing district within ten miles of your house. So find that swing district and go volunteer for those guys because they need the help. And I, I, I promise you they will be happy uh, for you to show up even a, a couple times a month to make phone calls or to, uh, you know, just uh, brainstorm about messaging or, um, you know, do some block walking, whatever it is they need. They need the help and they are not going to care if you live in an adjacent district. Uh, that's true. There's always work to be done. And yeah, they're not going to be like, well, you're not my constituent. I can't have you make phone calls. <laughs> right. Not true. And you're right. Like swing districts, there's one, there's one everywhere. And there's, there's always things that need to be done. And even if you're doing something like making phone calls or like licking stamps and putting them on letters, what sure. you're doing is you're freeing up time in that case for other people to be doing work that they really need to attend to. Yeah. And like you're saying, or if, if you, if you're someone like you, Matt, who provides uh, a certain amount of like, um, like experience in a certain field, then I'm sure they would love to have you in for brainstorming sessions or other things like that. So there's, your time is never wasted. If you go to a swing yeah. district and you give like, again, I've run a nonprofit and I've worked at a lot of nonprofits and a lot of these campaigns run like nonprofits. Um, there's always work that needs to be done and no one's ever upset that they have a volunteer. There's always something you can give a volunteer to do. Yeah, it's true. So, all right, well, that's, that's a great tactical checklist. You know, we didn't have time next week. Next week, I'm going to bring up uh, President Trump or Mr. Burns, who said it. <laughs> but uh, I don't think we really have time for that today. But this was a nope. really good talk. I was really glad we got yeah. to talk about some of these issues, especially yeah, about how how this sort of environment and how we think of the military and how that transfers to political action and, and our representatives, because again, like if we want real results, we need real oversight. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, if you like the podcast, please go on to iTunes and rate us. Give us a five-star rating. Uh, It helps us show up in the poll. So if other people are like, what do I want to listen to? We're more likely to show up the more people rate us. Also, if you have any questions or comments for us, you can always tweet at us. We are at Overdue. Is it? Oh, over there. You know, I listen to another podcast called Overdue, (laughs) and I say it all the time. Over there pod, right? That's what we are. Uh Uh-huh. Over That's there, it. pod, and then you can find us on Facebook. Same thing, facebook.com backslash overdue. Over there. Oh, my God. Over there, pod. And the other one is you can always send us an email, and that is, what is that again, Matt? Over there, podcast? Oh, over there, pod at bluecircle.org. 
Great. Yeah. Over there, pod at bluecircle.org. But we want to hear from you. We want to hear if you have any suggestions for things you'd like us to talk about. We'd love to hear what you think of the show, and we'd love to just kind of get a feel for who's listening. So uh, rate us, like us, and let us know what else we can do for you. But anyway, uh, my name's Terry Brennan here in cold, cold, cold Philadelphia. <laughs> Very upset. <laughs> and I'm Matt Martin here in sunny Florida for, for, it, the, for the day. Well, Matt, I hope, to be honest, uh, I hope to see you over there, there being Florida this week, and not <laughs> okay. like across the street where it's still cold in Philadelphia. Uh, okay, Terry, me too. I'll see you over there. Over there. Thanks, Matt. Back till it's over